In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. Tonight, we continue our critique of Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life. Now, we don't want you to get the wrong impression. We do believe that you should live a God-glorifying, purpose-driven life. But the problem with this book is that even though it starts with the claim of being God-centered, God's true will for you is trivialized and presented to you in a trite, mechanical checklist. In fact, this book really subverts God's plan for you to live a purpose-driven life. Thanks for joining us tonight. You're listening to Sinners and Saints on 99.5 FM, KKLA. Hi, this is Reverend John Sautel, pastor of Congregational Life and Outreach at First United Reformed Church of Chino. We are a Protestant, Bible-based, family-oriented church committed to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are located just off the 60 freeway at Mountain Avenue in Chino. We worship at 10 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. every Sunday. If you'd like more information about our church, give us a call at 866-99-UNITED. That's 866-99-UNITED. We welcome you tonight, Sinners and Saints. Adam Kalustian here, co-host with John Sautel and Moses Jambazian. We're pastors of local United Reformed Churches in Chino, Ontario, and Pasadena. We're glad you joined us. We are talking about the purpose-driven life, and what's fascinating is when you think about living for God's purpose, you should first think about the law of God. That is, what does God want me to do? What happens in this book is that the true law of God gets truncated. It gets replaced even with something that's not the law of God. Yeah, it's hardly even truncated. It's completely set aside. And the great irony of this, as the book is modeled on the 40 days of purpose based upon Moses being on the Mount 40 days, is that... Rick Warren emerges from the mountain after 40 days as the new lawgiver, as the new Moses. And the irony is he only comes back with five commands instead of ten. So now Rick comes back and he's got five laws for us. Bring glory by worshiping God, loving other believers, becoming like Christ, serving others with our gifts, telling others about him. These are the new laws that you have to fulfill. And if you're not fulfilling these, then that becomes law-breaking. But you know, the Ten Commandments that God gave and the greater law that has been already revealed is completely ignored in this case. Yeah, I'm going to give him this, just to be fair here. He starts out with at least the right idea, paying lip service to the idea that the Bible is our source of revelation. He says you can't build your life on pop psychology or success motivation or inspirational stories. Uh, that's all. We all agree with that. That's right. He'll also say at another point at the outset of the book that, you know, if you really want to discover your purpose and meaning in life, you have to get to know God. You have to go back to the creator, the source, the revealer of what the standards are for living in such a way that pleases God. But the problem is, as we've already noted here, is that the law, the real law of God, gets thrown out the window, and now it's redefined in the image of Rick Warren and what's been successful for growing Saddleback Church. And what's really nice about this is that it gets your focus really off of your own sinfulness. What this does is it allows you to ignore that and deal with other things that you can look outside yourself and no longer deal with the fact that you're a sinner in need of grace. Again, he gives a lot of lip service to this. He keeps talking about, well, Jesus died, 
But there isn't this understanding that has been present in theology of guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt based on an understanding of what the law of God really is. And then grace that God has forgiven us our sins. And unfortunately, the problem now is here are these five truncated items in which you are going to try to live up to. But they're also not entirely filled out. They're mostly devoid of meaning. And it becomes almost whatever you want. Okay, well, here's just one example, I guess, of the truncated law. He says, love other Christians. Well, I'm sorry, I don't think that's what Jesus said. He says, love your neighbor. Jesus made a very big point about defining who your neighbor was. Remember in the parable of the Good Samaritan, it is a very broad and comprehensive category. This is just one maybe trivial example, but it just goes to show the point that even in trying to uh, relate what the law of God says, he misses what the law of God says. It's interesting that he presents these five laws, and the impression that you get is that you can, if you apply yourself, do exactly these things. So he summarizes the law of God by these five points, and if you go through the process in 40 days, you can gird yourself up to live these purposes out rightly in your life. But the law of God in the Scripture always shows us that we do not keep it as we should. When I read these five points, I should bring glory to God by worshiping Him. I bring glory to God by loving other believers. I bring glory to God by becoming like Christ. I serve others with my gifts. I should tell others about Him. The first thing that I have to recognize is that I will never do this perfectly as I ought. But see, he just passes over that. He, he sets them up as if you can reach these and achieve these things like I have and like the people in my church who have followed this program have, and millions of others who are reading this book. Well, of course, every time you lower the standards for God's law, you always make it reachable for man. Isn't that the point? Which is, of course, a joke because nobody has ever reached even the lowered standards. And so that's why we keep on having to lower it year after year after year. And then eventually we just stop even pretending we're trying to meet the standards and we just make God obliged to love us. And I think that's almost where we are. I mean, again, you can talk about orthodox words. You're going to get all kinds of orthodox words from Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Even Muslims will tell you that they really think Jesus is a great prophet. But the gospel is really lost because the law is lost in this book. Now, we want to give you an example of uh, a practical example in this book of what we mean, how the law of God is trivialized or it is watered down to the point of not being the law of God anymore. Talking about worship, one of the purposes that we have to live for is to worship God properly, and we agree with that. We ought to, as part of a God-glorifying life, worship Him correctly. So we would expect, when we come to His chapter on worship, which is chapter 13 in the book, Worship That Pleases God, we would have some sort of law of God explained to us from the Word of God how we ought to worship. But instead we turn there, and what do we find? Well, what we find is a bunch of subjective standards rather than objective standards, which really tell us in a concrete, tangible way what it means to glorify God in worship. Now, he begins correctly. As so often in this book, he'll say one sentence of something that sounds right and good and orthodox and then completely drop the point and come up with Rick Warren's own ideas. He says, God is pleased when our worship is accurate. So we think what's going to come now is a set of standards, and what's the first one? Well, he says, worship in truth means worship God as he truly is revealed in the Bible. God wants you, God is pleased with worship that is authentic. Now, how do you define what is authentic worship if you just completely translate that in subjective categories? Well, according to Rick, you have to worship in spirit, and that's not through the mediation of the Holy Spirit, but that is through your spirit. You are to worship in a manner in which you are really committed to what you're doing, but again, you can be committed fanatically to the absolutely wrong things. If you don't have this accuracy, if you don't have really the definitions from Scripture of what pleases God, then your worship is going to be flawed, and your attempts at this law 
law keeping is actually going to condemn you further because you're going to be worshiping a false god. Well, now he acknowledges that. He says on the next page, of course, sincerity alone is not enough. You can be sincerely wrong. That's why both spirit and truth are required. So he'll give lip service again to that. But our point is that he does not give any standard by which to measure what worship is true or false. And and the proof of this is, a couple of paragraphs down in this chapter, Christians often differ on the most appropriate or authentic way to express praise to God, but these arguments usually just reflect personality and background differences. And let me tell you what he's doing here. He is trivializing the whole history of the debates in the Christian church on worship. He doesn't even introduce the categories of what do we do in worship? What are the sacraments? How do we do things in a worship service? Why do some churches have a liturgy some way and some another way? He says, oh, that's basically a difference in personality. Well, let me tell you, the whole Christian church and all of its different branches has not said their differences are a matter of personality, but a matter of substance. And theirs is authentic and variations from it are not. It's not just a matter of personality. And to critique further, you also have a real problem here. Notice what Rick is doing. He is saying that God has to adapt to your personality style and how you wish to be his friend, but nowhere are you being told you have to understand God and rightly worship him. He's made it whatever your personality is, that determines the relationship to God. Yeah, exactly. He quotes this book, Sacred Pathways, and it divides you know, the people of God into all these categories, the naturalist, the sensate, the traditionalist, the ascetic, the activist, the caregiver, the enthusiast, and the intellectual, and they all will worship God in a different way. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to worship and friendship with God. I want to ask you a question. Can you imagine in the early church, when they gathered together to worship, that they would split up into about eight groups depending on who was the intellectual and who was the ascetic and who was the naturalist and who was the emotionalist. This is preposterous. The church has said in its various expressions, look, we do things a certain way in worship because we believe that the scripture dictates to us why we do it. He says there's no one-size-fits-all worship, and that's wrong. The Bible prescribes a one-size-fits-all worship, and that is worship which is according to the Word of God. You don't go further than that, and you don't subtract from that. That's right. Sure, there are secondary differences on worship, but you cannot reduce the worship debates to that. Join us. We'll be back in a minute. This is Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. Are you looking for a church that values the Word of God and the rediscovery of its riches in the Protestant Reformation? Hi, I'm Pastor Adam Kalustian. I want to invite you to join us at the Ontario United Reformed Church. We worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. Take the Euclid Avenue exit off the 60 freeway, go north one block to Philadelphia Street, turn right, and you'll see us. That's the Ontario United Reformed Church, 866-99-UNITED. We do welcome you back to Sinners and Saints. Listen, it's not just enough for you to sit here and agree with some of our criticisms of the purpose-driven life and the purpose-driven church, but you've got to go to a place where you can put into practice the objective standards of God's Word for your church life. You can get in touch with one of our churches by calling 866-99-UNITED, 866-99-UNITED. We'd be happy to go along that journey uh, with you, be happy to meet you, talk to you more about these things. We want to get along. What is your motivation? What drives your life? That's chapter three in The Purpose Driven Life. What's yeah, the, 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 the first critique of the book uh, was that Rick replaces the law of God with Rick's law and his five purposes. And the other critique that we might want to offer here is what is the motivation? What is the reason why we should live 
this purpose-driven life. And this is another place where the book just completely fails. Uh, he starts out, right, again in chapter 3 when he talks about what drives your life. He says, you know, there are wrong ways to be motivated, guilt, anger, fear, materialism, approval. And so it all builds up to this expectation that now he is going to give us some grounding and some motivation, which is foundational for living this purpose-driven life. And what does he do but switch to benefits? Now making benefits the whole motivation and the foundation for the Christian life. Yeah, I think what he winds up doing here is he completely distorts the gospel. He completely distorts what is what Scripture has revealed. Our motivation for doing anything now is that we have been redeemed. It is thankfulness, gratitude by which we respond. That is our motive, is we want to show God genuine gratitude for the salvation we have in Christ Jesus. All right, let me explain to you clearly what this problem is. If an unbeliever is reading this book and says... Look, your problem is you're driven by guilt, or your problem is you're driven by resentment and anger, whatever else. And they're going to say, you know what, Rick? You're right. And so where does he take them after that? He doesn't take them to the cross. He doesn't say, look, your only hope in life and in death is that Christ paid the penalty. He spilled this blood to appease the anger of God, the anger that God has for you because you live by guilt and because you live out of anger and, and hatred for others. He doesn't say that. He goes immediately to, see, the good news is that you can change. And this simplifies your life. If you just follow my plan, it will reduce stress and fatigue and all these dead ends and the conflicts you keep getting into because you're not living according to God's big blueprint. Well, that's not a motivation. That's, that's completely dis- a distortion of how the Bible presents the motivation for the ethical life. That's like telling somebody who's dead in sin who can't do anything to get themselves right with God, okay, now start living for his glory. Well, what are you talking about? The whole problem is I resent God, I I resent my neighbor, I don't live in his glory, and you're telling me all of a sudden to just change my ways. I, I don't do that. You also have a real problem here in that he takes you off this pity party self-focus early on says, you know, you can't be doing all these things out of materialism, guilt for the approval of others. But then he still keeps you as the focus and says, you should be doing it for the benefits you're going to receive. And the benefits are you'll have purpose, you'll have happiness, you'll have focus, you'll have simplicity. But in all this, even though in chapter one, he says, this is not about you, it's about God. Chapter three makes it very clear. This book is about you. Well, yeah, let me address that. People are going to say back to us, well, but, you know, you're taking it out of context because so many other places he says that we're God-centered. He mentions Christ and the cross and him dying for us and all this. But let me tell you something. He'll say that in one place and then contradict it in another place. You might as well be reading the phone book as a guide for your religion because it's so unclear as to render the whole thing meaningless. And in this case, that is a real problem because... If you are to worship the one true God, God is a clear God. God is a God who wants to be known and understood. He is not a God of contradictions. He is not a God who cannot be known by us, at least in those points which are necessary for us to have eternal life. Rick Warren, unfortunately, has confused it. He's played the game, and he has caused people to not have the truth by which they can worship the one true God. See, the problem is Rick Warren, in the name of being relevant and contemporary, discards all of the classical categories which the church has used to understand the basic teachings of the Bible. For example, guilt, grace, and gratitude. You start with understanding your guilt, then you understand how Christ has saved you from your sin and guilt, and then you move forward out of gratitude to serve him. That's your motivation. But all of that is muddled in the name of relevance and contemporary motivation, all that. It doesn't work. It undercuts the basic teachings of the Scripture. And when we come back, we're going to work through some more of these days because there is some rich teaching that we wouldn't want you to miss. So we'll see. We'll be back in a few moments. 
Hi, this is Pastor Bureau of Grace Evangelical Church in Torrance. We are a new Reformed church serving all of South Bay. As a member of the United Reformed Churches of North America, Grace Evangelical Church emphasizes the preaching of the gospel, weekly administration of the Lord's Supper, catechism of our children, and emphasis on the singing of the psalms, all in a family-friendly atmosphere. Come, worship with us. You can reach us at area code 310-782-7019. Reformation Radio. Theology with an edge. Come to worship God at the Pasadena United Reformed Church. Worship Him in spirit and in truth. Hear the gospel faithfully preached. Rejoice in the God of your salvation. Come and join us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. We are located at 226 West Colorado in Arcadia off the Santa Anita exit of the 210 freeway. Call us at 866-99-UNITED or visit us at urcsocal.org. All right, we welcome you back to Sinners and Saints. We're talking about Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life, and we have found so many riches and nuggets in this book that we would hate to deprive you from them. So so we're going to start with Chapter 11, Becoming Best Friends with God. Well, I'll tell you what I was blessed with as I read this particular chapter. It was very encouraging to know after I read the first paragraph that the Almighty yearns to be my best friend. Yeah, I'm glad that God's going to be my buddy now, and this is going to be really great. And the best thing about this is he's not going to require a whole lot of time because one of the ways I can be his buddy is with breath prayers. <laughs> I can just find <laughs> phrases and just repeat them almost in a meaningless mantra-ish way, but I'm sure that's not what it is. But somehow this will make me buddies with God don't, because he'll be in my mind. Yeah, don't you do that when you're just like uh, driving through the parking lot at uh, the shopping mall or... We're watching a movie or whatever. Don't you just have your little breath prayers? God parking spot. Well, I, exactly. God, I, cop, zap him. that guy. Well, this is what you always hear. You know, you got to abide with Jesus. You got to be abiding with Him. You've got to be praying continually. They always quote that verse: "Pray continually." But it's a total misapplication of that verse. That just means that you should regularly pray. It should be your habit that you pray. But when you see Jesus, who is, by the way, a pretty good source if you want to figure out how to worship God being God himself when Jesus tells you how to pray what does he say well he makes it sound like you have to set time aside to do it and there it's a definite time and you should talk to God about certain things you shouldn't make prayer trivialize prayer and turn it into this breath that you speak or this attitude that you have during the day we don't believe that Jesus didn't well, teach well, us there's that. the flip side of that people who get so persuaded that Apostle Paul is actually saying you have to do nothing but pray your entire life then they come to you all guilty and they're not having enough time in their prayer closet and they feel like they're inferior second-class Christians because they're not having the breath prayers or not offering up petitions every two to three minutes and throughout the day it's not saying that yeah just meditate all day you know where this comes from it comes from eastern mysticism this is not judeo-christian understanding of prayer this is not what the scripture says i mean this this kind of idea that you kind of go around in a thoughtless relationship with god and you, you force yourself to be thinking consciously of all the, this is outrageous i don't see that anywhere in the scripture you just sort of it's just sort of assumed by the language, pray continually that you have to do this like we all do it in my church or in my group of Christians. Okay, but Adam, I've got a question to ask of you. I'm coming to you as uh, as a parishioner. I'm struggling in my life, and uh, I, I just want to know, what do you do when God seems a million miles away? You know those times in life when God seems distant and you don't feel close to him. 
Yeah, you know, John, I know what you're I sympathize with you, brother. Sometimes God seems MIA, missing in action <laughs> in my life. You know, as Floyd McClung described it and Rick Warren quoted it, you wake up one morning, all your spiritual feelings are gone. You pray, but nothing happens. You rebuke the devil, but it doesn't change anything. You go through spiritual exercises. You have your friends pray, et cetera, et cetera, but, you know, nothing happens. Well, you begin, do you- how long does this spiritual gloom last? Days, weeks, months? Will it ever end? Well, let me just share our notes here with you. One thing that I like to do when I feel that way is I like to tell God exactly how I feel. Pour out your heart to God. <laughs> Unload every emotion that you're feeling. And then, of course, he quotes some people from the scripture saying, well, these people did it. But let's deal with the reality of the problem is the reason I'm feeling distant from God is that I'm sinning and I don't want to face him. It's not the fact that God is absent. It is that I am a sinner. And what Rick never does is make us go back and confess our sins. Well, here would be a perfect time to give yourself a beat down with the law. The Word of God says if you live, for instance, husbands with your wife in a way that's disobedient to God's Word, the Word of God says your prayers are going to be hindered. You could apply that principle across the board. If you are living in unconfessed sin, that's probably the reason why God has withdrawn the light of His countenance from you, and you feel like this. And you need to come to Him instead of, Telling, sharing your feelings with God. You need to come to him and say, I've sinned against you. I've regarded iniquity in my heart. Therefore, you're not hearing my prayers. Forgive me. Well, there may be something else going on here, too, I think. And part of this is that he presumes that a right friendship with God or a right relationship with God means that you have to feel a certain way. I mean, he, he tries to get around that. He says, look, the truth is, if you're feeling distant from God, there's nothing wrong with you. This is a normal part of the testing and maturing of your friendship with God. So on the one hand, there may be sin that's getting in the way, but on the other hand, he says, well, part of this is going through this feeling, this distance is part of your testing and maturing, as if to say, if you are mature, you will have a certain kind of relationship and emotion with God. Look, my point is, not everybody has the same kind of emotional sense of God in the same way. I don't have to have any particular feeling that this other guy has in order for me to be a mature Christian. So he is not, our point again here, is he is not sensitive at all to the complexities of a question like, how do I feel about God? He offers some quick fix, and it doesn't work. Another great chapter is chapter 21, in which Rick decides that the most important thing in the world is to keep visible unity of the church. And he says this should be one of our purposes in life. On the other hand, God tells us that truth should be important, that we must be concerned about the truth of who he is because it is the truth that will set us free. Okay, so principle number one that he offers to help guide us in uniting the church and protecting our church, again, is focus on what we have in common, not our differences. Now, here would have been a great point to bring in the Word of God and to say, you know what, there is a time and place in the church for real differences, in fact, serious fights and arguments about the truth, because if you don't get the truth right, you are not actually in the kingdom of God. Like Paul confronting Peter, and he's saying, look, if you continue in this kind of divisive activity, it's not just divisive that you're dividing the fellowship of the body of Christ. You are actually living according to a false gospel. Yeah, once again in this chapter, he lays out a few principles which sound good on the surface, but because he so waters them down and doesn't give them a full explanation, they end up being worthless and actually undercutting the true principles. I mean, we all agree, focus in the church what we have in common. The question you've got to ask is, are you in a true church? I mean, before you can say we should agree to disagree, what have we agreed on? What does the church teach do we agree? Or, for example, support your pastors and leaders. Well, we agree you should support your pastors and leaders, but not 
if they are at fault, not if they are in sin, not if they're teaching things that are wrong. You know, they don't lord it over the people of a congregation. They are also accountable to each other and to God himself. So these principles are good, but they have to be explained with a certain context, which you simply do not get in this book. So you've also got to deal with, okay, if you're going to unite around all the things that we agree on, what happens if someone brings in something that we disagree about or something that is not biblical? You don't really have a principle in here that allows you to work on that. So if someone brings in tantric breath prayers or something like that, what are you going to do about that person in the church? You're stuck with it because supposedly you're still united on Christ. Or if your minister writes a book that so trivializes the basic teachings of God's Word as to confuse not only the people that are in your church, but the unbelievers who come into contact with the Christian faith, what should you do? What support, can you do? Support, support, support. That's your only option, apparently. Don't let doctrine divide. We hope you've enjoyed our critique of The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. We thank you for joining us on Sinners and Saints, and we'll see you at the same time next week. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. For more information, call 866-99-UNITED or log on to the web at urcsocal.org. That's 866-99-UNITED.